Welcome to Dun and Dun. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Before we begin today's episode, I want to thank you, all of you, for being so patient in its coming. This one is tough, and I wanted to ensure Dominique's story and the family's story, too, was told properly and respectfully. Taking that into account, today's episode is part one of the trial of John Sweeney, the killer of Dominique Dunn. We will conclude with part two next Monday. Because friends, I need to tell you, the whole trial goes badly, terribly sideways. These events horrify not only Dominic, but his family, most of the state of California too, as well as every victim of intimate partner abuse. This is also the event in which Dominic Dunn sees it all. He's writing a journal for Tina Brown, and this writing about this time will become the basis for his first Vanity Fair article, Justice, published in March 1984. Nick is forging his warrior for justice beginnings here. This is the time that he becomes adept, even in the midst of his own grief and anger, learning about the justice system that is in place for the protected and the powerful. Let's investigate. left Nick in this episodic narrative back in episode two. Again, thank you for your patience. It was Tuesday, July 5th, 1983. Nick is met with Tina Brown, pleading with him to write it all down, and he will. Nick, on this particular sad Tuesday in July, will leave New York City and board a plane for the jury selection for the upcoming trial. He arrives back in California, and we as readers in his father's account, really are taken in as he writes, For a while, I drove Dominique's electric blue convertible Volkswagen. It had stood unused in the driveway of Lenny's house since the murder, a reminder of her that we neither wanted to look at nor could bear to get rid of. I felt strange in the car, too old by far to be driving it. I could always imagine her in it, young and pretty, driving too fast, her beautiful long hair streaming behind her. In the glove compartment, I found a pair of her sunglasses, the ones she called her Annie Hall glasses. I had bought them for her in Florence when I visited her in school there. I took them out of the glove compartment and put them in my briefcase. Throughout the trial, when the going got rough, I would hold them in my hand or touch them in the inside pocket of my jacket next to my heart as if I could derive strength from her through them. It is the Saturday before the Monday, July 11th jury selection portion of the trial, and Lenny calls everyone over to her home, Nick and their sons. Lenny has received a call from a journalist friend of the family. He is called to deliver a message from Mike Adelson. This is the defense lawyer for John Sweeney. This is not how it should be done, but it is Hollywood. The Duns at this point do not have the home telephone number of the district attorney, of the prosecutor in the case named Stephen Barshup. Their relationship at this time is still very formal. It will not be after this. The Duns do decide to meet with a friend and hear what Adelson has to bring to the family, and big surprise, it's a plea bargain. 
Adelson's idea is let's just avoid the whole trial altogether. John Sweeney is so very sorry. He's willing to go to jail. How about Sweeney pleads to a reduced charge of manslaughter and serves seven and a half years? You take that, and maybe we'll just go ahead and drop that pesky assault charge that he's also being prosecuted for from five weeks before the murder. We'll just forget about that. Dunn will write, The journalist said that Adelson saw the case not as a crime, but as a tragedy of a, quote, blue-collar kid who got mixed up in Beverly Hills society and couldn't handle it, unquote. Now, this is not the first go-round with a plea bargain possibility. Adelson attempted this move back in February, but through the district attorney, Stephen Barshup. Back in February, the family accepted that plea bargain deal. Lenny's health was suffering. She is wheelchair-bound at this point, and everyone feels that her health would suffer if she endures a trial. It was already over before it even started. Everything was agreed to. But then in May, Adelson takes it all back, turning back on the actual courtroom trial scheduled for the summer. And now, the weekend before jury selection, the family is stunned that Adelson is coming back to us through a third party without the benefit of the district attorney who has no idea this is happening. Dunn will write, I felt distrustful and manipulated. I despised the fact that we were supposed to be moved, that Sweeney was remorseful and willing to serve seven and a half years. It's a really understandable feeling, right? Continuing on from Justice, Dunn will write, Although the journalist was only a messenger in the situation, the meeting became strained as he presented Adelson's viewpoints. Doubts were put into our minds about the ability of Stephen Barshup. There was even a suggestion that Dominique was a participant in the crime. Neighbors would be called, we were told, who would testify that fights were commonplace between Dominique and Sweeney. The journalist said that if the two snitches who had come forward were put on the stand, Adelson would, quote, cut them off at the knees, unquote. At the time, I didn't know what snitches were. They are fellow prisoners who betray confidences of the cell for lessened sentences. One prisoner reported that Sweeney had confessed to him that he thought he had the police believing he had not intended to kill Dominique. And another said that Sweeney had told him that Dominique was a snob, too ambitious, who deserved what she got. The journalist talked a great deal about a lawyer called Paul Fitzgerald. In the months ahead, I was never to meet Fitzgerald, but he was often presented in conversation as a sage of the court system, with detractors as vocal as his admirers. A former public defender, Fitzgerald was occasionally appointed as a conflict lawyer by Judge Burton S. Katz in whose courtroom the case was being tried. A rumor persisted after the trial that he wrote Judge Katz's astonishing reversal speech on the day of the sentencing. He was also a close friend of Michael Adelson's. On that Saturday afternoon, before the jury selection had begun, Paul Fitzgerald was identified as the source of the information reiterated again and again by the journalist who visited us that Mike Adelson was a wonderful man. I love the tone of Dominic's voice as he switches here as he will continue. 
It had not been my personal experience to find Mike Adelson a wonderful man. Twice during the February preliminary hearing, he addressed me in the corridor outside the courtroom as Mr. Sweeney, as if mistaking me for the father of the killer rather than the father of the victim. A seasoned courtroom observer suggested to me that since I was a sympathetic figure in the courtroom, it had been Adelson's intention by this obvious error to incite me to make some kind of slur on him in public. During that same hearing, a young friend of Dominique's named Brian Cook recounted a night on the town with his girlfriend, Denise Dennehy, and Dominique and Sweeney, during which several bottles of champagne were consumed. Singling Dominique out from the quartet of celebrants, Adelson, in questioning Cook, asked several times, When Miss Dunn got in from the bars, how drunk was she? The obvious intent of this ugly repetition was to give the impression in the courtroom that my actress daughter was an out-on-the-town drunkard. No amount of laudatory comment after those preliminary hearings would ever convince me that Mike Adelson was a wonderful man. Mustached and extremely short, his head toppled with a full toupee. Adelson made me think of an angry miniature bulldog. The journalist's mission, though instigated with good intentions, only engendered bad feelings. And I think that sets a pretty good picture for you, I hope, friends, because the trial will begin on Monday, July 11th at 9 a.m. The family gathers in Stephen Barship's office in the Santa Monica courthouse. Again, I'm going to paint this picture from Dunn's writing about Stephen Barshop. Alternately, tough-talking and professional, the district attorney is about 40. He achieved public recognition for his prosecution of the killers of Sarai Ribikoff, the journalist's niece of Senator Abraham Ribikoff. We felt lucky that Barshop had been assigned to our case by Robert Philibosian, the district attorney of Los Angeles County, but we felt that he did not want any personal involvement with us. Although never discourteous, he was brusque, and he made it very clear that he was running the show and would not tolerate any interference. Barship was angered when we told him that a plea bargain had been offered to us by Adelson through a journalist. You didn't accept it, did you, he asked. We said we had not. This matter is out of your hands, he said. The state wishes to proceed with this trial. That day, he gave us his home phone number, and for the first time, we called each other by our first names. The relationship will develop with Barshup through the trial, but let's round out the cast of characters that we're going to be working with in this spectacle, because that's really what it is. Let's give a moment to John Sweeney's mother, Dunwell Wright. And this part to me, friends, it's only part of the compassion beginning to develop in Nick that he will have for the families of victims, as well as the accused. This is oftentimes why and how Nick gets that seat in the courtroom. Here he writes of John Sweeney's mother, who had just arrived after a two-day bus trip from Hazleton, Pennsylvania. I had not thought of Sweeney in terms of family, although I knew he had divorced parents and was the oldest of six children and that his mother had been a battered wife. It was a well-known fact among people who knew John Sweeney that he had long since put distance between himself and his family. Alex said that he had been sitting next to Mrs. Sweeney in the courtroom earlier, not knowing who she was, when Joseph Shapiro came over to her, addressed her by name, and said that he disliked being the one to give her the message, but her son did not wish to see her. 
Alex said her eyes had filled with tears. For the next seven weeks, we sat across from the aisle from her every day. And though we never spoke, we felt compassion for her and knew that she in turn felt compassion for us in this dreadful situation that interlocked our families. Maybe that gives you an estimation of the kind of guy that John Sweeney is. His mother travels cross-country by bus and will attend a trial every day for seven weeks, and he won't even speak to her. Even within Dominic Dunn's writing, most especially surrounding the O.J. Simpson trial, some of the most poignant moments are when Nicole Brown's family and the Simpson family interacts. These tender, human, fragile connections that we all share, Dunn really does describe beautifully. Another character in this spectacle is the judge, Judge Burton S. Katz. Again, I'm going to let Dunn's words go ahead and describe the judge here. Presiding over the case was Judge Burton S. Katz. In his 40s, Judge Katz gives the impression of a man greatly pleased with his good looks. He is expensively barbered, deeply tanned, and noticeably dressed in a manner associated more with Hollywood agents than with superior court judges. He has tinted aviator glasses, and on the first day he was wearing designer jeans, glossy white loafers, and no necktie beneath his judicial robes. Every seat in the courtroom was filled, and Judge Katz seemed to like playing to the audience. His explanations to the prospective jurors were concise and clear, and he made himself pleasing to them. He said funny things to make them laugh, but then was careful to warn them against levity. So Judge Katz, similar to Judge Lance Ito, is going to think that he is the star of the show. This is a murder trial. Katz does a lot of shady things throughout the duration of the trial, He's already done some shady things in trial preparation as well. A little bit more background, though, on Katz to round out his character. One night during this time, Dominic will talk with his friend Sammy Goldwyn during the pre-trial period and expresses some of his problems with Judge Katz. Nick is sharing all of his father's grave doubts to his friend, Sam Goldwyn. And Sammy's like, Nick, I got you. I'm having dinner with John Vandekamp tonight, you know the Attorney General for the State of California, I'll get the scoop on Katz and report back to you. And Sammy Goldwyn does. Quoting Dunn, he reported back that Judge Katz went to law school at Loyola University and then served as a Deputy District Attorney for 14 years. He had been unpopular in the District Attorney's Office where he was considered a theatrical character. In 1970, he prosecuted members of the Charles Manson family for the murders of Shorty Shea and Gary Hinman. In 1978, he was appointed to the municipal court by Governor Jerry Brown, and in 1981, he was appointed to the Superior Court. He was considered highly ambitious and was said to like cases with high media visibility like this one. Just wanted y'all to have that in your knowledge loop, dear listeners, because... I find the background is the foundation of all the characters here and how this trial really does play out. Jury selection will take two weeks, and the lawyers for each side are trying to pinpoint jurors that will naturally benefit their side of the cause for guilt or innocence. Some rules are agreed upon. Excuses are made for jurors with violent crimes in their families. 
Dunn notes that women activists and people of obvious intelligence who asked pertinent questions were eliminated by the defense. But this is how it works. To get down to a pool of 12 with alternates, each side will have 26 preemptory challenges. And really, Adelson is kind of a weird questioner. I think this is such an astute observation here from Dunn. He writes, Adelson had announced that his defense would be based mostly on psychiatric findings. A writer photographer who was being questioned said he would not accept the testimony of psychiatrists and psychologists as fact. He further said that he found defense attorneys manipulative, to which Adelson replied, Suppose you don't like the way I comb my hair. Would that affect the way you listen to testimony? I found this an extraordinary image for a lawyer who wore a tope to use, and then I realized that he must think that we thought that the quarter pound of hair taped to the top of his head was real. This would help me later to understand the total conviction with which he presented his client's version of the events surrounding the murder, which we knew to be untrue. After two weeks, the jury is final, nine men, three women. The foreman runs a chain of bowling alleys. There's a postman, a butcher, an airline employee, a teacher. One juror had a juvenile delinquent son serving on a work farm. There's an Irish Catholic widow with six children, her youngest being a 22-year-old daughter. The prosecution would have liked more women, but are fairly satisfied with the pool. There is no interaction with the jury and the family, but Dunn will remark that he feels he grows to know them as the weeks pass. And Stephen Barshop will caution Nick, don't ever anticipate a jury, they'll fool you every time. It's a mighty good lesson there. You may want to keep that in mind for our Dunn and Dunn series as a whole. Because truly, Dunn at this point is learning the game of the two very different justice systems in our country. And it is a brutal education. When it is time to begin the trial, Judge Katz really sets the pace. Again, reading Dunn. Judge Katz's relationship with the jury bordered on the flirtatious and they responded in kind. If the court was called for 10, Judge Katzen invariably began around 11, with elaborate and charming apologies to the jury. One Monday morning, he told them he had had a great weekend in Ensenada, and he had the top down on his car both ways, and he wished they had all been with him. The ladies laughed delightedly. The men grinned back at him. Our family was never favored with Judge Katz's charms not even to the point of simple courtesies. For seven weeks, he mispronounced Dominique's name, insistently calling her by my name, Dominic. People wandered in and out of the courtroom. Lawyers from other cases chatted with the clerk or used the bailiff's telephone. The microphone on the witness stand fell off its moorings innumerable times and either went dead or emitted a loud electronic screech and it was never fixed. Still one more character to get through in this travesty, and that is the one of the defendant, John Sweeney, who has had a whole new makeover in preparation for the trial. He's a choir boy now, an innocent kid who just had a bad moment. Certainly this man is so kind and so gentle. He is no threat to women. It's all lies. It's all untrue. But this is the game the defense is going to play. Dominic will write about John Sweeney. 
It is the fashion among the criminal fraternity to find God, and Sweeney, the killer, was no exception. He arrived daily in the courtroom clutching a Bible, dressed in black, looking like a sacristan. The Bible was a prop. Sweeney never read it. He just rested his folded hands on it. He also wept regularly. One day the court had to be recessed because he claimed the other prisoners had been harassing him before he entered and he needed time to cry in private. I could not believe that the jurors would buy such a performance. You mark my words, said Stephen Barshop, watching him. Something weird is going to happen in this trial. I can feel it. And it does, y'all. It really, really does. As sideways as the jury selection went, now we get to the judge hearing testimony from potential witnesses. The jury is not included in these discovery sessions. Lenny Dunn is going to be questioned, as well as a previous intimate partner of John Sweeney as well. Dunn will write of this portion of the proceeding. On July 20th, Barship called us to say that Adelson did not want Lenny at the trial because her presence in a wheelchair would create undue sympathy for her that would be prejudicial to Sweeney. She was to appear in court the following day so that the judge could hear what she had to say and decide if it was relevant to the trial. We began to worry. It was becoming apparent that nearly everything Adelson requested was being granted. Adelson recognized Kat's enormous appetite for flattery and indulged it shamelessly. A camaraderie sprang up between the judge and the public defender, and the diminutive Adelson made himself a willing participant in a running series of short jokes indulged by the judge at his expense to the delight of the jury. It was becoming equally apparent that the district attorney, Stephen Barshop, was ill-favored by the judge. Lenny did not take the stand the following day. She was preceded by Lillian Pierce, who had been a girlfriend of John Sweeney's before my daughter. Detective Harold Johnston had tracked her down after receiving a telephone tip from Lynn Brennan, a Beverly Hills publicist who had once been her friend and knew her story. Lillian Pierce appeared by subpoena issued by the prosecution and was known in advance to be a reluctant witness. Later, we heard she had sat in a car outside the church at Dominique's funeral and cried, feeling too guilty to go inside. At Adelson's request, her testimony was given out of the presence of the jury in order to determine its admissibility as evidence. An attractive and well-dressed woman in her 30s, Lillian Pierce was very nervous and kept glancing over at Sweeney, who did not look at her. She had, she admitted, been in contact the day before with Joseph Shapiro, the Mamezan lawyer. When the district attorney started to question her, her account of the relationship with John Sweeney was so shocking that it should have put to rest forever the defense stand that the strangulation death of Dominique Dunn at the hands of John Sweeney was an isolated incident. He was, it became perfectly apparent, a classic abuser of women, and his weapon was his hands. Lillian Pierce said that on 10 separate occasions during their two-year relationship, he had beaten her. She had been hospitalized twice, once for six days, once for four. Sweeney had broken her nose, punctured her eardrum, collapsed her lung, thrown rocks at her when she tried to escape from him. She had seen him, she said, foam at the mouth when he lost control and smash furniture and pictures. 
As she spoke, the courtroom was absolutely silent. Adelson was incensed by the impact of Lillian Pierce's story, made more chilling by her quiet recital of all the acts of violence that she had survived. He became vicious with her. Were you not drunk? he asked her. Were you not drugged? His implication was that she had got what she deserved. He tried repeatedly to get her to veer from her story, but she remained steadfast. Let me remind you, Miss Pierce, he said testily at one point, shuffling through a sheaf of papers. When you met with Mr. Joe Shapiro and me for lunch on November the 3rd, you said... I stopped on the following sentence. My mind remained at the date of November 3rd. On November 3rd, Dominique was still on the life support system at Cedars-Sinai. She was not pronounced legally dead until November the 4th. So even while Dominique lay dying, efforts were being made to free her killer by men who knew very well this was not his first display of violence. Listeners, everybody take a breath. That should have made you angry. It made me angry saying it. We're going to continue with the travesty that this is. Adelson knew and sent a journalist to our home with the lachrymose message that he saw Dominique's death not as a crime, but as a tragedy. Patrick Terrell had told Detective Johnston that he had seen Sweeney act violently only once when he punched out a telephone booth in the south of France. It is a fact of the legal system that all information gathered by the prosecution relevant to the case is available to the defense. The reverse is not true. If Detective Johnston had not learned about Lillian Pierce from a telephone tip, her existence would have been unknown to us. I felt hatred for Michael Adelson. His object was to win. Nothing else mattered. Stephen Barshup cross-examined Lillian Pierce. Let me ask you, Miss Pierce, do you come from a well-to-do family? Adelson objected. I am trying to establish a pattern, Barship told the judge. At that moment, one of the most extraordinary I've ever experienced, we saw an enraged John Sweeney, his prop Bible flying, jump up from his seat at the council table and take off for the rear door of the courtroom, which heads to the judge's chambers and the holding cell area. Velma Smith, the court clerk, gave a startled cry. Lillian Pierce on the stand did the same. We heard someone shout, get help. Silent alarms were activated by Judge Katz and Velma Smith. The bailiff, Paul Turner, leapt to his feet in a panther-like movement and made a lunge for Sweeney, grasping him around the chest from behind. Within seconds, four armed guards rushed into the courtroom, nearly upsetting Lenny's wheelchair, and surrounded the Malie. The bailiff and Sweeney crashed into a file cabinet. Don't hurt him, screamed Adelson. Sweeney was wrestled to the floor and then handcuffed to the arms of his chair, where Adelson whispered frantically to him to get a hold of himself. Sobbing, Sweeney apologized to the court and said he had not been trying to escape. Judge Katz accepted his apology. We know what a strain you are under, Mr. Sweeney. He said. I was appalled at the lack of severity in the judge's admonishment. What we had witnessed had nothing to do with escape. It was an explosion of anger. It showed how little it took to incite John Sweeney to active rage. 
Like most of the telling moments of the trial, however, it was not witnessed by the jury. When this whole incident is written about for the Santa Monica Evening Observer, Mike Tipping, the reporter, is admonished by the court for his reporting. Adelson is so angry with Tipping's reporting, and Judge Katz is so accommodating in his supplication for Adelson that that day, Katz issues a court gag order. No one involved in the case is allowed to speak to the press anymore. Dominic will feel from this point on that John Sweeney is sedated in the courtroom to ensure that the kind of nonsense he pulled will never happen in front of the jury. John Sweeney is asked under oath if he is sedated, and he will say he's taken some medicine for an upset tummy. Stephen Barship, the district attorney, will request that a blood or urine test be completed, but Judge Katz will deny this request. Lenny will take the stand, and again, Dominic will write of this firsthand account of how that goes down. When Lenny took the stand for the first time, the jury was again not present. Judge Katz had to decide on the admissibility of her testimony, but he wrote notes through most of it and scarcely looked in her direction. Lenny described an incident when Dominique came to her house at night after being beaten by Sweeney, the first of the three times he beat her. Dominique's terror was so abject, Lenny said, that she assumed a fetal position in the hallway. Sweeney had knocked her head on the floor and pulled out clumps of her hair. Adelson asked Lenny if she knew what the argument that precipitated the beating had been about. Lenny said she did not. He asked her if she knew that Dominique had had an abortion. She didn't. I didn't. The boys didn't. Her closest friends didn't. It remained throughout the trial an unsubstantiated charge that to the defense seemed to justify the beating. The look on Lenny's face was heartbreaking, as if she had been slapped in public. Judge Katz called her testimony hearsay and said that he would make his decision as to its admissibility when the trial resumed on August 15th after a two-week hiatus. And friends, that's where we're going to return back in episode two. After that two-week hiatus, we'll be back in Judge Katz's courtroom where we will pick back up the story next week on Done and Done, concluding with the remainder of the events of the trial, the verdict for John Sweeney and its immediate aftermath. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today, for listening, for your kind words, for telling your friends, for your ratings and reviews. I appreciate y'all so much. Wishing you the most tremendous week, and until we meet again, y'all, Keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.